I invite you to open up to the book of Exodus, chapter 8. The God who delivers is on the move. The first of three cycles of plagues is behind us in this showdown between the Lord and Pharaoh. A great reversal is coming, but there is to be a reckoning before we can cross the waters to get to the other side and go to the promised land. Things, as we're going to learn this morning, are about to get worse before they get better in Egypt. The Lord is making himself known to the Israelites and the Egyptians by revealing the policies and practices of Pharaoh for what they truly are, anti-creation and anti-life. With each and every plague, the forces of nature are allowed to have their way. This is controlled chaos, however. Nothing that happens inside of Egypt is outside of God's authority. Each plague comes with a forewarning. Each plague is unleashed just as the Lord describes. Each plague has its limits. And almost as quickly as each plague is unfurled, the Lord abruptly restrains and eliminates its fury, thus demonstrating again and again his superiority over each and every would-be god of Egypt, including Pharaoh. We've been through snakes, blood, Frogs, gnats, but Pharaoh isn't budging. His own magicians, who were at first able to duplicate, though not reverse, everything brought forth by God through Moses have now exhausted their knowledge and power. As the dust of the land turned into a plague of gnats last week, Pharaoh's magicians were reduced to six simple yet sobering words. This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh will not listen. He will not heed their concession. He remains indifferent. His heart is hard. And so we come this week to the next round of plagues, the second cycle of three. As we are about to read from Exodus, if we listen carefully, if we listen carefully, we'll notice that Pharaoh deviates from his typical script this time around. If we pay close attention, we'll also see how the Lord adds a new development to the plot. As well, from Exodus chapter 8, starting with verse 20, hear the word of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the water and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and on your officials, on your people and into your homes. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies and even the ground where they are. But on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This miraculous sign will occur tomorrow. And the Lord did this. Dense swarms of flies poured into Pharaoh's palace and into the houses of his officials. And throughout Egypt, the land was ruined by flies. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God here in the land. But Moses said, That would not be right. The sacrifices we offer the Lord our God would be detestable to the Egyptians. And if we offer sacrifices that are detestable in their eyes, will they not stone us? 
We must make a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God as he commands us. Pharaoh said, I will let you go to offer sacrifices to the Lord your God in the desert, but you must not go very far. Now pray for me. Moses answered, As soon as I leave you, I will pray to the Lord, and tomorrow the flies will leave Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Only be sure that Pharaoh does not act deceitfully again by not letting the people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. And Moses left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did what Moses asked. The flies left Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Not a fly remained. But this time also, Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Round two begins, and the fourth plague unleashed on Egypt is another swarm of insects. First, there were gnats everywhere. Now, there are flies. It's not clear whether these flies are the kind that we're used to, or they are what are known as stable flies a vicious, blood-sucking insect that can multiply in large numbers in tropical and subtropical regions. Known to transmit anthrax and other animal diseases, swarms of these kind of flies would not just be an annoyance, they would be oppressive. We might notice that with this go-around, it is the Lord who is the agent of the action. Moses and Aaron are bystanders as God releases this plague upon the Egyptians. And what is the result of this Dense sea of flies, the wholesale destruction of the land of Egypt. The stakes are being raised, my brothers and sisters in Christ. The stakes are being raised as the conflict intensifies in Egypt. As the Lord turns up the heat, things in Egypt move from inconvenience to economics. You can't live off the land if the land is desolate. You can't trade or barter with other nations if you have nothing to harvest. As the fifth plague arrives on the scene, the economic crisis in Egypt only gets heightened. First, the Egyptians lose their land. Now, they lose their livestock. So far, death has only touched fish and frogs. But now, as some kind of terrible pestilence descends upon Egypt's horses, camels, sheep, goats, donkeys, death's shadow gets extended. Egypt's food supply is truly cut off. The welfare of the empire is in jeopardy. The trifecta in the second cycle of plagues comes with no announcement, no warning, and no chance for debate. With plague number six comes the first real indication that the very lives of the Egyptians themselves are in danger. No longer are we just dealing with pesky frogs annoying insects or diseased livestock. Now, for the first time, humans are afflicted as the Egyptians find themselves covered with boils. There is a deep irony in this plague. As the kilns, which were used to make bricks, are the source of this affliction. Handfuls of soot from the fires that made the same bricks that Pharaoh, in his defiance of the Lord, insisted that the Israelites make without straw become the delivery vehicle for festering boils. Imagine the discomfort and pain you would experience if every square inch of your body was covered like this. The grim and agonizing nature of this tragedy is evidenced 
by the reappearance of Pharaoh's magicians. They appear, but they are totally powerless. They are reduced to a position of not even being able to stand before Moses because they are held hostage by festering boils that have come upon all of Egypt. Pharaoh's magicians, who once perceived themselves to be powerful, who only recently were proved to be impotent, now cross a line they have never had to experience before as they join those who are suffering. The steady decline of Pharaoh's magicians is a foreboding omen of what awaits their master. Three more plagues. Three more plagues, just like that. Three more plagues bringing the grand total thus far to six. And at first glance, it appears to be the same chorus with a different verse. But did you notice? Did you notice some new wrinkles with the second cycle? Did you hear how the Lord's message got more specific this time around? Moses' petition to Pharaoh of let my people go now adds a line of intent. The Lord wants his people to be free so that they can worship me. And with this unveiling of his purposes, God does something different in Egypt. Up until now, the Israelites, like the Egyptians, have been mired in blood, frogs, and gnats. But starting with this new cycle of plagues, the Israelites are set apart by the Lord. As biting flies, diseased livestock, and festering boils overtake the Egyptians, the Israelites and their own animals remain unaffected. The Lord, in doing this, is revealing himself to be more than just the God. At first, it was all about being the God, more than just the Lord of all the other gods. Now, the Lord is getting more specific. The Lord is going public as their God, as the God of the Israelites. Here again, we witness, beloved, a distinction between the one true God and all the other false gods of this world. Whereas all the generic false gods are identified with different forces or powers in this world, the one true God identifies himself not with power, but with a people. Once again, we hear the Lord reinforce the point of all this plague business so that you will know that I, Yahweh, am in this land. Through Moses, the Lord is telling Pharaoh and all of Egypt, I'm with them. Be encouraged this morning, my brothers and sisters. Be encouraged this morning by these words. Be encouraged as we are reminded that we worship a God who takes care of his own. We worship a God who is that invested. We worship a God is so, who is so committed to us that he will answer when we call. Let us take comfort. Let us be reassured that with this God, if we cry out, he will hear us. This God will answer. Let us take comfort in this. But let us also be reminded that while this God will hear us, while this God will answer it is not always when or in the way that we expect. To put this another way, to totally throw you a, a curve, the picture that's unfolding for us here in Egypt in the Exodus story is not the health and wealth gospel. Now, if you've never heard of the health and wealth gospel, it supposedly works like this. God wants the best for you, your best life now. 
If you aren't experiencing all the best things now, you haven't asked the Lord or you don't believe that he can provide them for you. That on the surface may seem to be what's happening when the Lord sets apart the Israelites. This idea of health and wealth, of being set apart by God means you're, you're removed from all the bad stuff, from all the suffering. But if we've been paying attention and we're keyed into this story, something about that doesn't sit right. I think we can all agree that the Israelites have cried out to the Lord repeatedly. I think we can also affirm that just as the Lord is revealing himself to the Egyptians, he's also making himself known to the Israelites, and they are believing what they are seeing. They are receiving the gift of faith and being set apart by the Lord. But there is not health and wealth in Egypt for them. They are still, six plagues in, enslaved. Here in the second cycle of plagues, the Israelites are still in slavery, still having to gather straw and make bricks, still being beaten for failing to meet their quota. While untouched by the plagues themselves, the story does not inform us of any change in their situation. Now, perhaps some of us might argue, well, at least now there is some relief in their situation as the Egyptians are finally getting a taste of their own medicine. The logic here goes that being set apart by God, the Israelites can at least take some comfort, some joy in watching their oppressors suffer. And I, I said this last week, and I'm going to repeat it again, because as, I, as, we, as I've talked to people outside of Sunday morning about going through the plagues, it's so fascinating how much people like the plagues. And I think you like the plagues depending upon whose side you think you're on. But we like the plagues because I think we picture, we hear the story of the plagues and we are tempted to picture the Israelites watching all this chaos in Egypt from their windows or door frames, quietly snickering under their breath or shaking their fists in affirmation. And certainly if we like the plagues, that's our position. But this is a troubling picture, beloved. It's a very troubling picture. And thankfully, I'm going to tell you it's a false one. Contrary to what we might envision, the Israelites did not and could not rejoice in the suffering of the Egyptians. The proof of this, in case you doubt me, is etched into a centuries-old liturgy of the Passover Seder meal. If you've ever participated in a Seder, you'll remember that all those gathered for the meal spill some of their wine from their cups for each of the plagues imposed upon the Egyptians. In Jewish tradition, a full cup is a symbol of complete joy. But during the Passover meal, there cannot be celebration with complete joy, knowing the suffering unleashed on Egypt by God's judgment on Pharaoh's hardened heart. Beloved, we must reflect carefully on what it means to be set apart by God. Those are powerful, but misunderstood dangerous words. To be set apart by God is not a license to draw a line between us and them. To be set apart by God is not to become a source of individual or corporate triumphalism. We would do well to learn from the traditions of our Jewish brothers and sisters, the legacy of the Israelites in Egypt. Because more and more as a pastor, I grow concerned about the pride and arrogance that is often displayed in the wider Christian community. As a pastor, at times, 
I want to shy away from acknowledging my profession for the sake of some who supposedly I represent. Too many of us are too quick to claim a circle of protection around ourselves in the name of the Lord as we assign the Lord's judgment and condemnation on other people. Too many of us thump our Bibles, insisting that since the Lord is on our side, the Lord must read the Bible the same way that we do. Too many of us, believing that we have cornered the market on God's truth, turn that truth into a weapon, a means of persecution, rather than what God's truth is meant to be for freedom. We need to be careful. We need to be really careful in calling ourselves the people of God. We need to be careful because God's identification with a people, as we see here in the Exodus story, isn't superficial. God's heart is not first and foremost with an ethnicity or nationality. The first time Jesus declares the inauguration of the kingdom of God, he quotes the words of Isaiah, words that are built upon the legacy of Moses as we journey through the Exodus story. He says these words out loud in church. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Beloved, God's identification is with the human condition. God's heart breaks over the consequences of sin over the corruption of power, the abuse of justice, the reign of death that results from our broken lives. God sets apart the enslaved. God sets apart the marginalized, the lost and the least, so that he can rescue them, so that he can redeem them, so that he can resurrect them. And what this means is that if God's heart, if God's means of setting apart is setting apart the suffering, if that's where God puts himself, then so should we. To put it another way, we have been set apart. We have been set apart by God, but we have been set apart not to draw a line in the sand between others and ourselves, but rather to widen the circle of inclusion the circle of healing, the circle of hope. What this means in day-to-day -day practical life is that we can't be disconnected from the suffering around us. We can't make ourselves immune to the plagues that ravage this world now. We must pay attention. We must get involved. We must do what we can. Not for our own sake, not by our own power, we must do it for the sake of the cross. The cross, the ultimate symbol of how and why the Lord sets us apart. We must do it in the strength of the spirit that lives within us. Not a spirit of fear and timidity, but a spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. So beloved, it's not that hard. Read the paper, and not just the funny papers. Not just the crossword. Read the paper. Watch the news. Open some of that mail that you are tempted to throw away that talks about a difference that you can make in the life of a child or in a part of the country of the world that you'll never see in your lifetime. 
Have some spare change when you go on that ramp to the freeway. Build a house for a family that couldn't afford one without you. Go down to Mexico and spend some time with the orphans at Miracle Ranch so that those kids know that they do have a family. Come this afternoon and share a meal and have a conversation with someone who's living on the street. There are so many different ways, some small, some big, so many different ways that we can live out how set apart we truly are. There's an old rabbinic saying that tells of the later drowning of the Egyptians in the Red Sea. As the story goes, when the Egyptians were destroyed, the angels began to rejoice. But God lifted up his hand and said, the work of my hands are sunk in the sea and you would sing? There is no good thing, physical, intellectual, emotional, moral, spiritual, that does not come from the hand of God. If God does that for everyone, we, his children, must reflect that same generosity. We cannot turn a blind eye. We cannot, as those who have been set apart, have a deaf ear. We cannot have a hard heart about all that is happening in this world of ours, in our communities, in our families. If we do, we will find ourselves set apart in a dramatically different way. We will be set apart like Pharaoh. Set apart in our denial. Set apart in our rebellion. Set apart in our indifference. Set apart in our stubbornness. Set apart in our pride. No. We have been set apart by God so that we would cultivate a measure of humility. The kind of humility that Pharaoh rejected. We have been set apart so that we would not have the arrogance and judgment that led Pharaoh not only to his own personal tragedy, but to the downfall of an entire empire. Speaking of Pharaoh, did you notice that he makes some headway this go-around? It actually started back with the plague of the frogs, but Pharaoh starts to make some concessions. Pharaoh actually acknowledges Moses' authority and, more surprisingly, the authority of Moses' God. Granted, it doesn't last long. Pharaoh opens the door to the Lord and then shuts it just as quickly. And we'll talk more about this next week. But for now, I want to focus on the request that Pharaoh makes of Moses. Not once, but four times. Pharaoh asks Moses to pray for him. Jesus commanded us to pray for our enemies. And now, here in this exchange between Moses and Pharaoh, we see what that looks like in action. We witness a small but powerful example of what it means, practically, to be set apart by God. We are not set apart to isolate ourselves from others. We are set apart to stand in the gap. We are set apart to stand with the enemy. Now, if you're familiar at all with the exchange between Moses and Pharaoh, it really has got to make your blood boil if you picture yourself as Moses. Because on the surface, it sounds great. Pharaoh asks Moses to pray for him. And it is a big deal because up to now, Pharaoh hasn't even acknowledged that God exists, that, that Moses has any justification or any power whatsoever. I mean, it is a, it's something small, but it's significant that Pharaoh is giving away some of his power in deferring to Moses. 
But if you're familiar where your blood boils is, Pharaoh continues in, with every petition for prayer. Every time he asks Moses, will you pray for me? He continues to manipulate Moses. He manipulates him. He lies. He tricks him. He never keeps his word. He, is, he mocks God in, with each and every request and denial after his prayers are answered. Pharaoh is a true enemy. And yet Moses prays for him. Not once, but four times. Now, I would venture that if any of us were Moses, once bitten, twice shy. I'm sorry, but I'm not going to waste another prayer on you. I'm not going to waste, I'm not going to leave here and get fooled again, getting on my knees before the Lord, offering up a prayer when I know you're not going to keep your word. When I know you're just going to keep doing your same old tricks, Pharaoh. You know, maybe the grand picture that I painted for you was overwhelming about how we live into being set apart by God. But it actually begins, as everything always does, with prayer. Beloved, when's the last time you offered up a good prayer for Osama bin Laden? When's the last time you offered up a good prayer for Kwan Jung Jin? Not hearing a lot or seeing a lot of hands. We've all got some preconceived enemies in our mind. Maybe that's too big. You know, I heard the hush when I said Osama bin Laden out loud in church. But I'll, I'll go, I'll go more cl closer to home. We've all got some preconceived enemies in our mind, don't we? Maybe it's that politician that you despise. Maybe it's your neighbor whose dog howls all night, who plays rock music too loudly, who never returns the tools he borrows. Or maybe it's that person who always cuts you off on the freeway. Or that person who defames and humiliates you in public. Maybe it's that boss who consistently gives you a bad review, who doesn't notice how hard you're working. Maybe it's that company that fired you without cause. Or cut your hours. Maybe it's that bank that called the loan on your house. Maybe it's that person who lied about you behind your back and cost you some friends. Maybe it's that person who blamed you for what they did wrong. Maybe it's that unfair teacher. Maybe it's that bully. We all have preconceived enemies in our mind. But I ask you, I ask us, we who have been set apart, when's the last time you offered a good prayer for one of those people? Building homes, going to orphans in Miracle Ranch, showing up to serve a meal. That seems like epically a, a huge shift. And yet look at where we are now just asking if we would pray for our enemies. Do we realize, beloved, that there are no enemies that God has that he would not desire to have as friends? From the agony of the cross, we remember every Lent as we prepare for Easter, that Jesus interceded for the very people who put him up there. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. A prayer for his enemies. A prayer for us. For, as the scriptures say, we were once alienated from God, but now we are reconciled to him by Christ. We have been set apart. Beloved, I remind you this morning of the gospel. 
that we worship a God who is so invested, so committed to us, that he makes a personal investment in our well-being. He's the kind of God who gives us a wake-up call so that we have no doubts that he is with us. But in setting us apart, in placing that call, God wants us to wake up. God wants us to understand that we are set apart, but we are not off the hook. We are not of the world, but we are in this world. And so I invite you, in the spirit of the plagues, not in the spirit of us and them, in the spirit of the chaos that's being unleashed in Egypt and in our world today, as we may, in reading this story, stand with the Egyptians as those who it does not touch us so deeply, it does not affect us so greatly, to not simply turn our eyes, to close our ears, to harden our hearts, but instead to realize that our cup cannot be full of complete joy until Christ comes again. And that means that we are called not only to recognize that the God who delivers is on the move, not only to proclaim that the God who delivers has delivered us, but to recognize that in being so delivered, we are the means of God's deliverance for those who are still lost, for those who are still enslaved, and yes, for those who are still our enemy. Amen? Amen. Amen.